Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, and I'd like to welcome you to another episode of Popcorn and Compliance, a podcast where, with Jay Rosen, we take a look at movies from the compliance perspective. But before we get to our podcast, have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? You Would you like to explore some compliance topic? Well, I have founded the Compliance Podcast Network, and I'm looking for new podcasters. If you've wondered how you might start a podcast, please listen to our sponsor, One Stone Creative. If you are enjoying this show, you might enjoy hosting your own. As an expert in your field, you have skills, knowledge, and insight that can help you expand your practice, meet new people, and create amazing content to share with the world. In as little as two hours a week, you can dramatically change how you promote, fill, and position your business, and One Stone Creative can show you how. Learn more at onestonecreative.net. In this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, Jay and I began a multi-part exploration of the Star Trek movies. As many of you know, I did an entire series this summer on the intersection of compliance and Star Trek, the original series. Today, we continue with our second offering, Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Popcorn and Compliance is produced by the Compliance Podcast Network and now a proud part of C-Suite Radio. Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox, back again with Jay Rosen for certainly one of my favorite podcast series, Popcorn and Compliance, the podcast series where we talk about uh, our joint great love of the movie. So, Jay, welcome back. Thanks, Tom. This is... uh, we just finished taping part one of this uh, multi-part series, and I'm anxious to go behind the scenes and look at Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. What does the Hollywood Insider tell us about this movie? Okay, so after the release of Star Trek The Motion Picture, executive producer and creator Gene Roddenberry wrote his own sequel. In the plot that he anticipated, the crew of the Enterprise would travel back in time to set right a corrupted timeline after the Klingons used the Guardian of Forever to prevent the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Unfortunately, this idea was rejected by Paramount executives who continued to blame the tepid reception of the original movie, Star Trek, the motion picture, which at that time uh, reflected a budget of $46 million. And they decided that uh, Roddenberry should be removed from the production no longer be involved creatively and kicked upstairs to a ceremonial position of executive consultant. Harv Bennett, a new Paramount television producer, was made producer of the next Star Trek movie. Executive producer Bennett wrote that the film's original outline, which Jack B. Sowards developed into a full script. Nicholas Meyer, the director of Time After Time, was brought in and completed a rewrite in only 12 days. According to Bennett, He was called in front of a group, including Jeffrey Katzenberg and Michael Eisner, who were at Paramount at the time, but went on to make their fortunes by reviving Walt Disney Studios. The motion picture, which Bennett confessed he found really boring. When Bennett replied whether or not he could make a better movie for, uh, can you, uh, actually, Charles Bludorn, who was the head of Gulf and Western, the parent of Paramount, said, can you make it for less than 45 effing million dollars? And Bennett replied, where I come from, I can make five movies for that. Bennett realized that he faced a serious challenge in developing a new Star Trek film, partly due to his never having seen the original. Uh, at that point, Karen Moore, a Paramount executive, brought in Nick Meyer, and they were able to go forward. 
one thing that was pausing the production is that um, Paramount had changed the film's title from its originally working title, which was The Vengeance of Khan. And they changed that because it was too close to the working title for George Lucas's follow-up to Star Trek. It was supposed to uh, be called, um, excuse me, as soon as the name changes made, Lucas changed the name from Revenge of the Jedi to Return of the Jedi. And at that point, Star Trek came back and changed the title back to The Wrath of Khan. One other interesting thing uh, that I'd like to note, since I'm a big fan of soundtracks, and I know you like those too, Tom, that in the first uh, installment, Star Trek The Motion Picture, Jerry Goldsmith composed the music. Unfortunately for this time, he was not available, and he really couldn't be accommodated by the budget. There was a, a vice president of music at Paramount at the time, Joel Sill, and he took a liking to an unknown 28-year-old composer named James Horner, who would go on to score some of my most uh, favorite soundtracks, Braveheart. Uh, he actually scored the movie The Perfect Storm that I worked on. So in terms of its release, The Wrath of Calm uh, was released in North America on June 4th, 1982. It was a huge box office success, earning $97 million, which would be equivalent to $252 million in 2018 dollars. Critical reaction to the film was positive. Reviewers highlighted Khan's character, the film's pacing, and the character's interaction as among strong story elements. Uh, critical response was positive. Rotten, uh, Rotten Tomatoes gave it an 87% based on rankings by 54 critics. So uh, I think they basically hit it out of the park. And um, I'll be anxious to hear your thoughts now, Tom. Uh, yeah, Jay, I think they really did in this one. Um, I can still remember my sister uh, calling me up to tell me, you're going to love it. It's just like the TV show. Uh, she saw this as, as really just a, a kind of a, a lengthy episode from the television show. And I have to agree with uh, that. Um, uh, amateur assessment. The um, the plot was just great. The tie-in with Khan uh, was great. Um, the having Chekhov uh, move up the chain of command uh, all I think play, paid homage to the original series. The, um, the special effects were much much better in this case. Uh, this movie, uh, even to the. Uh, the death, the d dust scenes of SETI Alpha 4. Um, so uh, it, it just worked on all, all levels. Um, the, um, in rewatching this movie a couple of times in preparation for this podcast, Jay, I was really struck about the violence in this movie and um, uh, the, uh, the, the torture and slaughter of the um, uh, people on the Genesis station, I thought was uh, very disturbing. The um, obviously the uh, attacks on the Starship Enterprise um, by Khan really showed a level of uh, destruction, blood and gore that we had not seen in Star Trek before. Um, so certainly, circa 2019, it, it seems almost quaint, but uh, it struck me in rewatching this how. Uh, very different it was from uh, any Star Trek we'd seen uh, before. The um, Some of the lessons I'd like to, to maybe talk about uh, are, um, as a leader, you really have to, to, to be vulnerable. And I know that's 
that's antithetical to many what many business leaders believe, particularly probably men of our age, Jay. That's not the way we're taught that business leader acted, but acted. But Kirk really wore his heart on the sleeve. Obviously, Carol Marcus did as well. But the scene where he meets David, I think, was one of the most powerful scenes uh, in the movie. Uh, leading up to the most powerful, uh, which was, of course, the death of uh, Spock. And I rewatched that several times um, because it was a, an incredibly moving scene uh, at the end, one of probably the best death scenes that I can remember uh, in a movie. Uh, number two, uh, and I really like this one, um, see life as an adventure. Uh, Kirk was uh, earthbound or deathbound, as my dad would say, a former naval officer uh, when the movie started, and he really wanted uh, to get back out into space anyway. So um, uh, when Khan provided the excuse, he uh, he got out back into space. So um, it really uh, that ties into I think every CCO should see their role as an adventure, uh, and it's an adventure not because you're siloed into simply compliance, but you get to really work with uh, all. Uh, facets of a corporation where you should. Um, in the Star Trek movies, I think fortune favors the brave. If I could translate that into uh, not simply compliance speak, but really uh, a corporate business approach, Jay, uh, companies are rewarded for uh, management of risk. And <clears throat> the reason compliance programs exist is to manage risks. And companies that do so more quickly and more efficiently, uh, do better business-wise. Uh, I call it the ethical edge, um, but my firm belief, and I believe we now have a substantial body of evidence that shows more effective compliance equals more efficient business process, which uh, at the end of the day makes companies more profitable. So where you need to be brave in space, you can manage risk uh, as um, more effectively than your competitor, you'll have an edge. A uh, couple of things, uh, the um, needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And this is perhaps one of the greatest lines uh, from Star Trek, uh, but it, the sentiment, the sentiment uh, actually, uh, this line was said in this movie, but the sentiment came directly from the original TV show, and it's manifested literally in every TV show and movie thereafter. Kirk had always been willing to give up his life for his crew and his ship. We saw... Uh, Spock give up his life for his crew and his ship. Um, but I'm not saying a business leader needs to sacrifice um, their lives, but sometimes you have to stand up and stand up, uh, speak truth to power. You have to report uh, to directors. You have to report C-suite leaders. Um, so uh, sometimes uh, the needs of the many do outweigh the needs of the few or the one. And then finally, infinite diversity and infinite combinations. I think if one thing that uh, a conversation that came out of me too, it's been going on a long time, but got reemphasized was that the greater diversity you have, the more, uh, the more better your corporation will be. And Amy Bernard Barn uh, really talks about this in terms of diversity on the, on the board of directors, uh, having female boards of directors and why it improves companies so much, having the diversity in your workforce generally means you have a a high-valued speak-up culture, which, uh, as uh, you and your colleagues at Affiliated Monitors tell us, is a key component 
of a uh, culture of inclusion and a culture that works in an organization. So infinite diversity in infinite combinations. I love that phrase. And uh, every business leader, I think, uh, needs to embrace this. Real, real great takeaways, Tom. Um, in terms of looking at this movie just from its construction, uh, a lot of the times uh, when I was screenwriting and what I look for in a movie or any type of dramatic thing is that the forces of uh, opposition have to be as good or if not greater than the forces of your protagonist. And I think where V'ger was very cool that they came up with the idea of, you know, it, I thought it was the coolest thing when, oh my God, it's his Voyager probe and they're calling it V'ger. And I thought that was neat. But uh, in terms of doing this, Khan is a much more formidable uh, opposition to Kirk in the Enterprise than V'ger is. So I think that's why this movie really works, that it's focused on, they had the crossover from the from TOS. You had Ricardo Montalban, who's very much, you know, an old Hollywood guy. And the whole thing just played much better and much tighter. One question for you that I think will lead over when we get to the next episode is when they wrote this at that point, they had written Kirk, uh, rather Spock's death. At that time when they wrote the screenplay, was there ever any plan of bringing Spock back or was that supposed to be the end of the character? So, Jay, originally it was going to be the end of the character. Uh, and uh, I can't remember who had the original idea to bring him back. Roddenberry gets credited with it, uh, but somebody else just raised it to him and, and that became the genesis of uh, Star Trek three. Uh, there's one other line, Jay, that uh, has always been one of my favorites. I've used it innumerable times since this movie came out. Uh, and it's the following when they are uh, trying to escape con, the enterprise is gravely injured. Uh, they go into a, uh, basically a dust cloud in space. And in this dust cloud, they, um, uh, are trying uh, the tracking devices are not working, so um, they're devising a strategy to not only evade Khan but to, to sneak up on him. And uh, Spock says the following that his thinking is two dimensional, and meaning it's an X and a Y axis. Uh, he uh, doesn't think uh, vertically. Um, so uh, the Z axis for those who play three dimensional chess. And so I've always thought about that when uh, my thinking, I think, becomes conventional, that it means my thinking is two-dimensional. And one thing I loved in the corporate world was the challenge of literally five-dimensional thinking. Because um, as a lawyer, uh, you have to deal with uh, national laws. In the United States, you have to deal with international laws. If you're working for a multinational, you have to deal with state laws. You have to deal with in- internal company laws called policies and procedures. And you may have to deal with the other, your counterparty's laws. Um, so uh, you have to have multidimensional thinking. And, and if there's one requirement for a chief compliance officer or anyone in the compliance profession, it's multidimensional thinking. So uh, I think that line really plays uh, uh, well into the role of the compliance officer. It's certainly been, as I said, one of my favorite lines. Spock was always my favorite character anyway, so anything he said I pretty much hung on by every word, but that was uh, was one of my great, greatest lines. 
But the thing I wanted to ask you about, Jay, was the death scene. Um, because mm-hmm. I think we've probably both seen um, death scenes that uh, pandered on the point of cheese. Um, but I really wanted to get your thoughts on this death scene and ask you, how do you write a death scene? And then how do actors take what you've written and, and try to communicate that into an emotion that uh, can convey something none of us know much about? Yeah, it's a, it's a real great question, Tom. Um, in terms of that, I, we always used to struggle that, you know, there's a line of dialogue that you might want to leave the audience with. And you have to figure out how to get that out, how to have that be the last thought along with the character closing his or her eyes. But to your point, you don't want to make it cheesy. So uh, you can't have people having long soliloquies, but I think that line about, you know, the, the many and the few, I think when you work that in with Spock's self-sacrifice, it makes sense. And then I think the viewer is bringing in all that time that Spock and uh, Kirk have fought together on the television show and the different disagreements and how, uh, you know, basically Spock has become this, uh, logical person and now has his heart. So I think they do a very successful job of taking the history between the two characters and playing that in that immediate scene. So I think they succeed there and it's a, it's a very moving moment, really the, the cap of the whole picture for me. I think many people feel that way. And, uh, the uh, the other thing was, and you alluded to this in uh, your uh, Inside Hollywood opening, was that how much this uh, movie turned around the franchise because of the the bloated nature of the first production, the cost, alleged cost overrun, and then the uh, the lack of real action. This this really turned things around, and I think established not only the movie as a movie franchise, but also really led directly to uh, TNG and uh, the subsequent series. So kudos to everyone. I'm not a big Harv Bennett fan because of what he did to Gene Roddenberry. Nevertheless, he did put this one together and this is really his baby. And so kudos to him. uh, Nicholas Meyer uh, is one of my favorite screenwriters. Uh, Anyway, uh, I read uh, also a novelist, so a a big fan of, of him as well, and I thought he did a great job going forward. So uh, I don't think there'll be any surprises here, but where do you, uh, where does the Wrath of Khan stand in terms of its popcorn and compliance rating? So Jay, I know uh, once again this is an audio only podcast, so uh, it's uh, a minimum two buckets, but also two diet cokes in front of that. So I'm going to have to have a big tray. Uh, to take to my seat, because this is one of my favorite movies of all time. All right. Well, I'm going to go an overflowing bucket with a fair amount of butter and the secret ingredient, a box of milk duds. Mix it around. Don't let it melt too much. Don't sit next to Mrs. Monitors, because if you do, you will not get any of those milk duds. (laughs) (laughs) I don't think think it can be uh, said much better than that, Jay, so... So on behalf of Tom Fox, the compliance evangelist, and myself, Jay Rose, and Mr. Monitor, we'd like to thank you for joining us for this episode of Popcorn and Compliance, where we took a look at Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan. Look forward to seeing you next time on Popcorn and Compliance.
Hello, everyone. This is Tom Fox again. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of Popcorn and Compliance. I certainly hope you enjoyed Jay's recitation of the facts and his Inside Hollywood uh, section. I found this uh, really interesting in terms of uh, some of the lessons for compliance practitioners, both in leadership and in compliance. I hope they will pro- provide a thought-provoking experience for you as well. If you have any questions, you can reach Jay at jrosen at affiliatedmonitors.com. I'm available at tfox at tfoxlaw.com. I hope you'll join Jay and I again for another episode of Popcorn and Compliance. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.